Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. If you look at our text in Romans in your order of worship, you'll notice once again that it looks a little bit different than it does when you look at it in Scripture. I've taken the liberty of taking this last paragraph in Romans chapter 3 and breaking it out a little bit to give you a sense of the question and answer flow of Paul's words here. So this is our text, Romans 3, uh, verses 27 through 31. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. When you look at those verses, especially if you look at them the way that that they're broken out in your order of worship, you can kind of see four sections, four questions and answers. Once again, as Paul brings uh, his argument to a head, he does it through anticipating objections, anticipating questions that what he's taught will inevitably raise, and then he answers those questions. As I read through the text, I was looking for a metaphor, uh, some way of explaining all of this, and what came to my mind was nails. It's almost as if Paul is driving in four strong nails to make sure that everything that has come before stays where it's meant to be. He really drives the message home. But uh, that metaphor, as I thought about it, wasn't quite right because it, it doesn't quite capture what I think Paul is doing here. I needed a different way of conceptualizing it. I was struck at the end of Mahler's Eighth Symphony last night that, that every temporal thing is merely a metaphor that everything in the physical world is a sign of, of a higher reality. And, and so the higher reality is what Paul is talking about. And you really need to get the right picture in your mind, I think, to, to understand what he's trying to do here. Fortunately, the metaphor came to me thanks to Lori. A lot of things come to me thanks to Lori. In this case, because Lori recently discovered a new uh, alternate profession. In another life, if she could go back and do it all over again, Lori has discovered that she would become an art restorer. She would be one of those people who painstakingly restores old masters, these canvases that have been painted but over time have become dirty and worn. And she got me hooked on watching videos of these restorations. It's very calming to think that in the swirl of, of, of the world that we live in now, there are people who are devoting hours and hours and hours to painstakingly retouching paintings you've never heard of before. There's something calming about that. And as I I watched, I started thinking about the way that that artwork is often described to us, 
If you go to a museum, these days you see usually like a, a plaque or a sign next to the painting explaining what it is. You'll see if you look over at the, the robe, uh, Jeff Smith's sculpture there on the side wall, there's a little panel on the side that explains to you the significance, how it was made, that sort of thing. That's how we do it now. But if you look at older paintings in a museum, oftentimes you'll find on the frame a little brass plaque that's been bolted on to the frame that gives maybe the title of the work and the artist and perhaps the theme that the work is meant to portray. And I'm going to suggest to you that maybe the best way to think about these verses is as one of those plaques on a frame. Paul has painted a picture of the gospel. He's shown us, on the one hand, the, the terrible toll of sin and the wrath of God revealed against sin, a problem that is unsolvable apart from the gracious death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So he's given us that darkness, he's given us that light, and he's put it all there for us to behold. And now, having done that, he affixes a plaque that tells you the theme of the work, tells you what it's all about, that reminds you of the thing that you mustn't forget about this. And, and what it says is a little surprising. What it says is your boasting is excluded. Your boasting is excluded. That's the takeaway. That's what you need to remember. That's the thing you shouldn't forget. Having heard this gospel proclaimed, what you need to know is your boasting is nothing. The, the foundation has been taken out from underneath it. That's the message. And it's secured strongly, not with four nails, but three. First, the message. Where is your boasting? It is excluded. And then he hammers home the foundation for that conclusion. But what I want to do is look at those nails. Look at the nails that affix that message. And then look at what that message means. And then finally ask ourselves, what, what do we do? What do we do if we have nothing left to boast in? There are three strong nails that secure Paul's message here. The first nail is that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Paul poses the question, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. To be justified by the law of works would not take away your grounds for boasting. It would give you wonderful grounds for boasting. Anyone who, through their perfect obedience, has a claim on salvation has a good reason to crow about it. They have something to be proud of. So this is not a law of works. It's some other kind of law, a law of faith that makes boasting impossible. What does Paul mean when he refers to the gospel as a law of faith? Right? We're usually keeping faith and, and, and law, really separate. Law and gospel, faith and works. We want to have a really strong dividing line. And now Paul is talking about a law of faith. Francis Turton says he calls this a, a law of faith because faith is the condition of the gospel covenant, just as perfect obedience was the condition of the covenant of nature and that of Moses. 
So where obedience was the condition in the one case, faith is what we're called to in the other. So here Paul is helpfully restating for us the doctrine that he has subtly laid out. In case you didn't get it, what we hold to, he says, is that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We contribute nothing to our justification. There's no goodness that we bring to the table. There's no um, additional work that we do. We're not in partnership with God to get ourselves across the finish line. We are justified apart from all human effort. That's the first nail. Because if that's true, there's nothing to boast about. There is nothing to boast about. The second nail has to do with circumcision and uncircumcision. He asked the question, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? He answers, yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In other words, if the problem is the same, the problem of sin is the same, and he's established that throughout Romans 1 and 2, that Jew and Gentile alike are under the same condemnation for sin, then the solution to sin must be the same as well. Justification by faith apart from works for the Jews and the Gentiles alike. There is no difference between the two. Now, when Paul makes this point, culturally speaking, what's important for him to do here is to undermine the idea that there might be a different uh, plan of salvation for one tribe versus another. Right? He wants to take away the, the thought that Gentiles in the eyes of Christ are in some secondary category. Instead, he's bringing Jew and Gentile together. That's not a stretch for us. Right? We're living 2,000 years later, and we take for granted that togetherness, that sameness that we have but there are other ways in which this message is one that, that we also need to hear. When Paul says that the plan of salvation is the same for everyone, that it is justification by faith for everyone, that it is Christ for everyone, if you keep talking that way, eventually someone is going to turn up and say, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. Are you saying that there's no salvation except for people who believe in Jesus? Because a lot of good people don't. A lot of people believe all sorts of things. And you're saying those people will not be saved? Really? You're saying that what makes the difference between eternal destinies, heaven and hell, is what belief system or ideology I happen to commit to during the short period of my physical life? Does that make sense to you? we think, oh, it kind, of, it, it kind of doesn't. Like, why does it matter what people believe? They behave themselves if they're good. Shouldn't they all be treated the same? Paul is just to explain to us that being good means nothing in the eyes of God, that, that there is no one who is good in the eyes of God, no one who meets that standard. So we know already that just being good isn't enough. Now, Paul is saying there is only one salvation, for sinners. It is justification by faith in Christ apart from works. The reason that seems a little weird to us, even Christians, let's be honest, in the 21st century, 
is that when we think about salvation and we think about eternal destiny, we think about that um, as something a little bit divorced from reality. People should just believe what they want to believe, and that should be enough. It's interesting, though. We don't take that same approach when it comes to gunshot wounds. I don't know if you've noticed, if you've been in the emergency room recently, but, but, but if two people come into the emergency room with gunshot wounds, and one of them comes with the belief that the best thing to do would be to put pressure on the wound and stop the bleeding, but the other comes in with an equally strong belief that the most important thing to do is to let the blood flow from the wound, to cleanse the evil humors out of the system so that the person may be healed. We don't typically say, you know what, people believe all sorts of crazy things. Believe what you want to believe, and I'm sure it'll work out fine in the end. Right? We have pretty strong feelings. Right? We understand that it's important to stop the flow of blood, otherwise you die. It actually does matter what you believe in a situation like that, because one belief leads to life, and the other leads to death. We just don't think this is that kind of question. When we think about eternity, we think about the consequences of sin and what you can do about sin, we think of that as a philosophical question, sort of hypothetical. But Paul is not saying that salvation is available to anyone who will embrace the philosophical system of Christianity. He's not saying that salvation has been made possible by this awesome Christian worldview that if you embrace it and start seeing things biblically, you will be saved. Paul is saying that the problem of sin and therefore the way of salvation, that was addressed by a historical event in which a historical man, Jesus Christ, entered into reality, died a real death that solved the real problem of sin, and that there is no other solution. That's how the point that he's making here still speaks to us now. Whenever you find yourself tempted to think it doesn't really matter what people believe, some people are Christians, some people believe other stuff, just let people believe what they want to believe. Remember that what Paul's talking about here isn't belief systems. He's talking about reality and the consequences of sin in the real world. So justification is by faith alone, and this is true for everyone. That's the second nail. The third has to do with the law. The gospel doesn't overthrow the law. It upholds the law. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. You can understand where people would have thought, hearing what Paul was saying, we're not saved by works of the law. What he must mean is the law is abolished. There's now no more use for the law. We should all pull it out of our Old Testaments and crumble it up because now that's been abolished by the New Testament. It now serves no purpose. But Paul says that's absolutely wrong. Jesus had been open to the same criticism. There were people hearing what Jesus said who thought the same kinds of things. But Jesus insisted in Matthew 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law, the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law isn't what you think it is, Paul says, but that doesn't mean we've abolished it. That doesn't mean it's been overturned. Actually, this gospel upholds the law. 
It is the only means of upholding the law because without the gospel, all you can do to the law is break it. If you want to describe a life of constant law-breaking as upholding the law, fine, Paul says, but I don't think that counts as upholding the law. The only way to uphold the law is obedience. And the only way to be obedient by the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit. How is it possible that faith is what upholds the law? In his commentary on Romans 5, Calvin explains it this way. He says, the moral law is in reality confirmed and established through faith in Christ, inasmuch as it was given for this end to lead man to Christ by showing him his iniquity. So the law is given to show us our sin. And without this, he adds, it cannot be fulfilled. And in vain will it require what, what, out, um, what ought to be done, nor can it do anything but irritate lust more and more and thus finally increase man's condemnation. So if all you have is the law, you become aware of your sin, and it exacerbates that sinfulness. All you can do is break it. You become more and more conscious of the ways in which you fall short. But where there is a coming to Christ, he says, there is first found in him the perfect righteousness of the law, which becomes ours by imputation. In our justification, the righteousness of Christ an extraordinary righteousness of God we talked about last time that is given to us as a gift, not earned by us. That righteousness justifies us. And then there is sanctification by which our hearts are prepared to keep the law. It is indeed imperfectly done, but there is an aiming at the work. The way that faith upholds the law is that Faith not only justifies us, but by the power of the Spirit begins to sanctify us as well. So that people who once could only look at the law and see the ways in which they had fallen short, by the help of the Spirit begin to see a new obedience emerging in their lives. And Paul says that is how the law is upheld. That is the only way. So justification is by faith alone, and this is true for everyone, and only by faith. Can we uphold the law? Therefore, your boasting is excluded. If these things are true, you have no reason to boast. Now we go back to the beginning. Now we go back to the message on the plaque. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. It is set away. It is impossible to boast under these conditions. This word boasting here, it's, it's not as negative as it sounds to us. Usually if we talk about boasting, we only ever mean it in a, in a pejorative sense. It's only ever an insult. If I say, you know, I was going around yesterday boasting about my abilities, just the fact that I put it that way suggests a hypocrisy, right? People who boast, usually these are like uh, braggarts, blowhards, that sort of thing. But not all boasting is that kind of boasting. Certainly in Scripture, it's not that way. Sometimes... To boast is to glorify. To glorify, to give glory to something or someone. Sometimes to boast is to have confidence or show your confidence in something or someone. For example, in Philippians 1, 26, Paul says, so that in 
mean you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus, to boast in Christ Jesus. The author of Hebrews says, we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Confidence and boasting kind of grouped together in that way. Most famous example is probably Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That idea of boasting in Christ or boasting in God isn't new in the New Testament. If you go back to the Old Testament, you find this urged upon us, that we ought to put our boast in God. We should boast in in God alone. You find this in the Psalms. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice in Psalm 34, 2. Psalm 44, 8 says, In God we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Boasting there begins to sound a little bit like worship giving glory to God, showing our confidence in God. Prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. If that sounds a little familiar, it should, because that idea of Jeremiah's is quoted by Paul in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 31, he says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Again, in 2 Corinthians 10.17, he says, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Even in our text, if you go back a little bit in the book of Romans, you'll see that, that Paul has used this Old Testament idea of boasting in God. But in doing it, he's shown us that things are not always as they seem, if you go back to Romans 2.17, when he's talking to the self-righteous, he says, you rely on the law and boast in God. You rely on the law and boast in God. The irony is you act as if those things go together. That you're relying on the law, you're relying on your obedience, your goodness, and you boast in God. When the reality is, if you're relying on works of the law, then your boast, in fact, is not in God at all. That illustrates the heart of the problem. What the self-righteous call boasting in God is really boasting in self. When we tell ourselves that because of our obedience, our goodness, we are pleasing to God, what we're doing is boasting in ourselves, not in God. Your boasting is cut off entirely by the gospel. Your pride is conquered. How? Because the gospel reveals that salvation is God's work alone and not yours. Not yours. And that means there is nothing to be proud of. There is nothing to boast about. 
What is it that we take pride in? Think about your own pride. I will admit that when we confess our sins, pride is one of the first things I always find myself having to turn my back on yet again. Pride. At the root of all of my sins, I think pride is there. And I oftentimes tell myself that, that, that God has given me certain things to deal with precisely because if I didn't have them, my pride would be beyond all measure, beyond all reason. And I'm not alone in that. Pride, pride is a satisfaction in the things that set us apart. The things you're proud of are the things that make you different from other people, things that make you better than other people. We take pride in our natural gifts, natural abilities, the things that we can do well that other people can't do. We're proud of those things. They, they set us apart. We glory in those gifts. We glory in our accomplishments, the things that we've done, the things we've managed to pull off, the work that we have done, because let's face it, not everybody has, and honestly, not everybody's even capable of doing some of the things that we've managed to do. We glory in our choices, in our actions, even in our positions. I believe the right things about stuff, and I'm constantly hearing people tell me their beliefs and thinking, <laughs> you just don't understand the way things work. Pride, it distinguishes us. It sets us apart. It reassures us that we're better than other people. What the gospel is doing is taking that away. We glory in our heritage. We glory in our families. We glory in our nation. We glory in our identity. And like so many nails in the frame, the gospel is like the claw hammer pulling each one of those things out. This doesn't belong here. This has nothing to do with your salvation. The only thing that sets you apart is grace. The only thing that sets you apart is grace and nothing else. The gospel is here to kill your worst enemy. And your worst enemy is your pride. Because your pride tells you you can save yourself. But what do we do when we see it? What happens when you don't just hear the words, but you feel their weight taking from you everything that you've boasted in? When you realize the gospel really is saying, it's all grace and it's not me. Where do you go from there? Where do you go from there if you've got nothing left to boast about? Jonathan Edwards, the great New England uh, theologian and preacher, has a sermon, famous sermon, with a really catchy title. It's entitled, There is a Great Difference Between the Converted and the Unconverted. Wonderful. And uh, in the application of this sermon, he, I think, profoundly hits upon the implications of the gospel that we often overlook, having to do with pride. Like if this is true, if this really is the way salvation comes to us, if we are in Christ by grace alone, apart from works, what does that mean? How should that change us? One thing Edward says is, 
as a result of it, we shouldn't make so much of the differences between us in this world. If this is true, if we see that this is true, we should not make so much of the differences between us and our fellow human beings. He says, if there is so great a difference between converted and unconverted persons, let us not make much of other differences here in this world. Persons should take care that they don't make too much of their worldly distinctions and differences from other men, such as if they have more wit than others, or more beauty, or more learning. They should not set too much by these things so as to be lifted up above others in a proud thought of themselves, and so as to scorn and despise others. If the only thing that separates us is grace then we shouldn't spend so much time thinking about what makes us better than other people, including, Edwards adds, our moral differences from other people. We should take special care not to make too much of our moral differences. Men ought to take special care, he writes, that they don't make too much of their moral differences, such as if they have more moral virtue than other men, if they are more just, more sober, or religious. They should not make a righteousness of them or imagine that they deserve any more notice from God for those things than other men. That'll exclude some boasting. Don't take pride in your righteousness. You're at church on a Sunday morning, and most people aren't. Congratulations. You have something to be proud of. Not really. Not really. Not really, because even our virtues, we owe to the power of the Spirit working within us. Do not be proud of your advantages, Edward says, but also don't mourn their loss. This is tough. He said, it is a thing unworthy of men to make very much of the relative distinctions of this world, such as being richer than others or being in a higher place than others. It doesn't become those who profess to believe the word of God, which informs us of the great relative differences between converted and unconverted men, earnestly to desire or seek these things, or to make very much and be proud of them if they are enjoyed, or to much pine at the loss of them. He's taking away the substance of most of our lives. Most of what we do is is have ambition to achieve more and take pride in what we've achieved. Or, for a lot of us, most of what we do is pine over what we've lost or failed to achieve, what we don't have. None of which matters, he says, if this is true. If this is true, if only grace sets us apart, then those things shouldn't have the effect on our lives that they so often do. Let us not, therefore, esteem it any great happiness to be distinguished in these things from others, or to be richer or higher in the world than others. Let the covetous man leave off seeking and caring for earthly riches, and let him labor, that he may become an heir of the heavenly land. Let the ambitious man leave off aspiring after outward greatness, and aspire after the honor of being united to Christ. In other words, once all ground for boasting is taken from us, then and only then can we boast in Christ. Then we can boast in Christ and boast in him 
in that sense we talked about earlier, the sense of glorifying, the sense of having confidence in him. If our only glory is Christ, if our only confidence is in Christ, then we are worshiping him as we should. It's almost as if God has intentionally made justification by faith alone apart from works so that no one can boast because he wants us to be God-glorifiers, not self-glorifiers. It's almost as if the way it works and the reason it works that way is because God has this plan to make human beings into worshipers as they were made to be. If you think about it that way, it makes sense. We were made to worship Him, to give glory to Him. It's because of sin that we don't. It's because of sin that we boast in self instead. I realized that, uh, I mean, I haven't been to everybody's house, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that, that none of you have golden idols to yourselves that you bow down and worship before. If you do, let me know. I'd love to see that. Uh, we'll, we'll destroy it, but first, I'll get a picture. But uh, you may not bow down to a golden idol in your own image, but you take pride in your gifts and your accomplishments. You savor the satisfaction of how much better you are than those around you. You have confidence in the ways that you've been set apart from other people. You put your trust in your good choices, in your wisdom, and your right beliefs, and your distinctions. If so, I want you to see that all of that has one trajectory, which is to divide us from one another. All of that self-worship alienates us, not only from God, but from one another by convincing us, by lying to us about how different we really are. Pride drives a wedge between us all. But grace is good at demolishing wedges. Grace is good at bringing us together. Jesus loves to kick over idols. He will kick over the idol of self, knock it down and make it impossible for us to do anything but glorify God, have confidence in God, and yes, even to boast in God alone. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.